Hello, our reading this morning comes from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing in fruit, in which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. Um, today we're going to spend some more time in Genesis 1 um, for our sermon series, which is titled, Life Together Again. Genesis 1 just has tons of depth, tons of nuance, so by no means are we going to exhaust its richness. Uh, but because there's so much going on, I'm just going to give you a brief roadmap of where we're going to go this morning before jumping right in. So first, we're going to look at how God goes about creating. What does he do? Next, we're going to consider what God intended by making human beings in his own image. Third, and finally, we're going to think about what it means to participate in God's creative activity as followers of Jesus, the image of the invisible God and the first truly human being. So let's begin and look at how God goes about creating. Starting in verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we see a description of the earth and the deep before God begins to create. This pre-creation state has a couple features. On the one hand, it has no form, which is to say that it has no structure. It's unordered. It has no function. So God's going to have to give it some form. He's going to have to structure it. And on the other hand, the pre-creation state is void. It's empty and uninhabited. There's a whole bunch of nothingness in the pre-creation state. And God's going to address that by filling the void. He's going to have to give it some inhabitants. Okay, third, uh, we get this picture of water and the deep. Here, water is kind of associated with the concept of chaos, kind of a primordial feature of the world. Um, it's how some ancient people would have conceptualized non-existence, how they thought through what might have been there before God went, went about creating. So we see God hovering over the face of the waters. God draws near to the chaos, and he prepares to engage it. 
So before moving on, I'll just mention that this theme of order and chaos would have been of some significance to the people of Israel and to others in the ancient Near East um, and the writer of Genesis among them. Uh, on the one hand, there's chaos, and chaos is the stuff that's disorganized. It's dangerous. It's messy. It might not exactly be in the final state that God intends for it to be. It can represent what's absurd or what's hard to make sense of. Chaos is the kind of stuff that isn't in right relationship with God or the rest of creation. And on the other hand, there's order, chaos and order. Order is the stuff that's in right relationship with God. It's organized, it's arranged, it has purpose, it has a function, and it's meaningful. We can make sense of it. So we're given this picture and we're given the theme of order and chaos, and I think we're supposed to anticipate that God's creative activity is going to involve bringing order to what is chaotic and filling up what is empty. So let's keep this in mind as we continue. I want to first point out that God creates by way of proclamation and calling forth. He repeats, let there be light and calls forth light. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and calls forth an expanse. Each time God says, let there be, or let the earth, or let the waters, we hear a setting of intentions. And by calling forth creation, I think that God begins to fill that which was previously described as void or empty. So God calls forth. Second, God creates by way of gathering and separating. We read that God separated the light from the darkness and this was to separate the day from the night. And likewise, God separated the waters from the waters. Perhaps the writer, in repeating this word, uh, this verb, in fact, he wanted to emphasize, maybe, that the act of separating involves ordering things that are chaotic, of arranging them in their proper place. So part of God's creative act includes differentiating, making things unique, an individual. And in that way, we see contrast and content begin to emerge in creation. God gives form to that which was formless. Then God gathers the waters. He pulls together the water to make it a cohesive whole. And so if the earth was void before creation, it was some kind of vessel waiting to be filled, I think we might hear the gathering of the waters as the filling of this empty vessel. So in the act of gathering and separating, God continues to fill and to give form to creation. Third, God creates through the act of naming. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. God called the expanse heaven. The waters that were gathered together he called the sea. God names creation. He assigns its components various identities. We might understand that naming is an act of uh, determining something's meaning, maybe its function. And we're not able to relate to that which is not named. We need names to make sense of our experience and to narrate our lives. So God's naming is one more way that he brings about order from chaos in his creative activity. Okay, one final feature. Uh, and I'm going to call this feature, which is a little more abstract, 
uh, a motif of participation. So God doesn't just create everything all at once on his own terms. And he really doesn't create anything that's independent or unrelated to other parts of creation. Rather, I think that in the text we see God present, uh, God is presented as creating over time, the six of the seven days. And he involves particular components of what he has created to produce new creatures and novel features within creation. Let's look at verse 11 for an example. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. So God doesn't simply summon forth oak trees out of nowhere. He doesn't just bring mini monsteras and the rest of our houseplants into existence. Um, at least in the story, he's inviting the earth to sprout vegetation. Soil and water are necessary conditions for plants to take life. And God creates plants in such a way that plants produce seeds, which in turn produce more plants. And these seeds depend on the conditions of soil and the seasons in order to sprout forth. Fruit trees bear fruit, which in turn contain seeds, which produce more fruit. So creation participates in God's creative activity. Again, we can see this on the sixth day. Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. So these beasts are described as being called out of the earth. God differentiates and names parts of creation to give them their unique identities and their unique purposes, sure. But I think that part of what we see here is that these parts of creation are, are never intended to be isolated nor to stand alone. We know that they depend on each other for their flourishing and are used by God uh, to bring about more beauty, more beauty and more diversity in creation. Um, I also want to point out one other part of this text uh, that includes this motif of participation. Uh, there are a bunch of different, uh, different words, uh, verbs in Hebrew, that are used at different times to describe when God creates or makes. But I want to point out one of these words in particular, asa, uh, pardon my pronunciation. So this word is used in verses 7, 16, 25, 26, and 31 to describe God making the expanse. God made the two great lights, made the beasts of the earth, made man, and everything else that he had made. But this same word is also used to describe plants, specifically trees which bear fruit. So just as God asa the beasts of the earth, fruit trees asa fruit. And obviously this isn't the same exact kind of thing, but I think we're intended to see some kind of parallel here between uh, what God does in creation and what the trees are doing when, they're, when they bear fruit. So God creates in part by summoning certain elements of creation to make their own contributions to the world. This is the motif of participation. Okay, we've looked at how God goes about creating 
Now we're going to take a look at the creation of humans, of man, of Adam. So God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So first we see that man is made in the image of God. And various Christian traditions have proposed different answers to the question of what, it, what exactly it means to be made in God's image. Uh, one answer commonly given is that what it means to be made in the image of God is to have a soul, a kind of special spiritual component that's uh, not exactly shared by the rest of creation, and it's what makes humans unique. Uh, but I don't, I don't really think this is in the text, and, and many agree. Rather, I think that being made in the image of God is more about the type of vocation that God has assigned us. It's about the work that he's given us to do. Uh, and I think the following verse fleshes this out when God proclaims, let them have dominion. God, has, God gives humans some kind of rule or authority over the rest of creation. Okay, so this helps us a little bit, but it's still a little bit unclear. Um, well, there's a general consensus uh, among scholars and pastors and theologians that, that the kind of responsibility and authority that God gives to humanity can be captured by the idea of stewardship. A steward is someone who manages something, who cares for it, nurtures it, and arranges for its flourishing on behalf of someone else. So when someone assigns property to be stewarded by someone else, uh, this act indicates the trustworthiness and faithfulness of the one entrusted with the land or the estate or the object of stewardship. And the, the employer, you know, anticipates excellence, a job well done on his or her behalf. I remember um, a, a presidential candidate in the lead up to the 2016 election saying something like the following in a TV interview outside of a town hall on the campaign trip. So, you know, that God gave dominion of the earth to humanity, you know, we can understand that as, as basically being a divine imperative to pursue economic development at all costs. You know, we, we really need to be energy independent, and we should take as much fossil fuel out of the ground as we need to to do that. So, you might be guessing that this isn't really the kind of stewardship that I think the Bible is talking about, um, at least here in Genesis 1. Uh, in fact, this kind of sentiment isn't really stewardship at all. A true steward is to keep in mind um, that someone else is always the property's true owner. A true steward must remember that the owner has his or her own intentions and purposes in mind for the future of what is being stewarded. Okay, so part of what it means to be made in the image of God is to share in stewardship of the earth on God's behalf. But I do want to point out one thing. Um, the words, at least in their English translation, to have dominion and to subdue, these words are pretty gritty, and they're almost kind of aggressive. They suggest a kind of taming of whatever's being subdued. And... Some might think that, like the presidential candidate I just paraphrased, our dominion over the earth basically means we can do whatever the heck we want to do with it. 
Um, but I don't think this is what we're supposed to hear when we read this part of the text. Rather, when we read dominion and subdue, I think we're supposed to be reminded of what God was up to in the beginning of the creation story. We are reminded that God subdued and had dominion over the primordial chaos of the pre-creation state when he went about giving form to that which was formless and filling up that which was void. And I think that what it means for humans to subdue the earth is that we're to participate in the same kind of activity that God did. Humans are to engage with chaos, as God engaged with chaos, to bring about greater amounts of beauty and value. Uh, dominion is the type of rule that God exhibits that he intends for humans to have. But this dominion isn't ruthlessly subjugating, destroying, or coercing. But rather, God's dominion over chaos involves filling what is empty and bringing order to what is chaotic. And so, to subdue creation is to involve ourselves in God's creative act by way of gathering, by way of separating, by proclamation, and by blessing. I want to point out uh, one special uh, verse here. Man is told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We all know that verse. Um, but uh, what hasn't been pointed out frequently, at least to me, is that this exact same command is also given in verse 11. But it's not to humans. God blesses and proclaims the multiplication of the sea creatures and the birds. So when we consider the flourishing of humanity, be fruitful and multiply, we're reminded that, well, God also intends for the birds and the sea creatures, even the animals, to flourish, not just humans. So we we can't treat any part of nature as merely instrumental. Rather, our flourishing must correspond to the flourishing of the rest of the world. We are to prayerfully and thoughtfully consider what God has entrusted into the stewardship of man. Um, and, and we're supposed to think about its flourishing, not just uh, what we can appropriate from it or extract from it. Rather, God intends for humans to engage with the world wisely, with patience, humility, and even slowly. And I think this is something that, uh, that Wendell Berry is getting at when he refers to the possibility of kindly use of the land and natural resources. Uh, finally, I just want to point out that um, Genesis 1, this, this kind of, uh, the story actually continues into Genesis 2 a little bit, and we're just going to briefly visit it, um, because I think we see more of this participation motif going on here. Um, so in chapter 2, we know that man names the animals, and in fact, we see man, or Adam, name woman, or Eve. And here, I think we're supposed to be reminded that this is the same kind of naming that God was doing in the beginning of the prior chapter. Um, like God, man assigns value and purpose to different creatures by naming them. And he names them not simply for his own gain or benefit, but because they're intrinsically valuable. So how does all this translate to us? How are we supposed to contribute to God's creative intentions for the world? In short, we work and we worship. We go about our days and we use our hands and we engage our minds. But we don't just do any work. Rather, like God, 
We do work that fills what is empty and brings greater order to the chaos that, indeed, is still present in the world. We work the land and reap a sustainable harvest. We write stories to tell truths. We debate ideas. We make art to commend, to encourage, even to reprimand. We make homes and share our possessions with those in need. We give of our time and of our money. We consider the impact of our work on our neighbors and our enemies. Indeed, we praise and we give thanks to God. We might think about work or stewardship as anything that keeps the chaos of the cosmos at bay while providing for the mutual flourishing of humans and other forms of life on this world. God created a universe with chaos and dangers and risks, to be sure. But these dangers and these risks are also the conditions for the possibility of depth and beauty and creativity. The text seems to imply that God didn't completely do away with chaos when he created the world. After all, God leaves it up to Adam to finish the naming of the creatures. So on the one hand, uh, if we are to bear God's image in the world, we must be humble, cautious, wise, and patient in how we use it. We must remember that God is God and we are not. It would be idolatry to presume to completely understand and to assume mastery over the natural world. But on the other hand, we cannot avoid our dependence on the world. In fact, we must steward the world for our flourishing together. God has sustained and woven the story of humanity into the tapestry of the wider ecological world with its cycles of life and death, even of evolution. And I don't think God would really want us to self-flagellate and, and wallow in despair at the reality that we have no means for survival, let alone flourishing, except at some expense to the natural world. Rather, I think that God might prefer to us to reframe it in this way. He might want us to glory in his creative design of an interdependent world, to repent for our failures to be faithful stewards and to engage the world with humility while giving thanks to God for providing through its bounty. Wendell Berry suggests this. If we are to be properly humble in our use of the world, we need places that we do not use at all. We need the experience of leaving something alone. We need places that we accept as influences upon us, not the other way around. Places that we enter with the sense and the pleasure of having nothing to do there. Places that we must enter in a kind of cultural nakedness, without comforts or tools, where we submit rather than conquer. I want to also suggest that we actually have to get to know creation in order to be its stewards. We have to get to know the land and its inhabitants. God has made us to be humble and faithful bearers of his image. So, only by getting to know creation's features, its dangers, and its boundaries, and its many textures, might we become its faithful stewards. Okay, finally, let's tie this back to the story of Jesus. Here at Trinity Heights, we've often described Jesus as the first truly human being. Jesus was the first to fulfill our human vocation to faithfully bear God's image on earth.
But how did he do it? What made him succeed where we and others have failed? I think that Paul, in his letter to the church in Philippi, writes something that just might hint at some kind of answer to this question. Okay, so I'm going to read from what's referred to as the Christ hymn of Philippians 2. Uh, this is, it's called the Christ hymn because it's thought by many to be some quote from a song or other well-known liturgical material that would have been circulating around the early church at the time. So here's Paul's description of the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The Christ hymn tells us that the mind of Christ involves emptying oneself. Jesus took the form of a servant. Only by humbling himself and taking the form of a servant could Jesus do what God had originally intended for man. This is to say that Jesus, that in Jesus demonstrating self-giving love, his taking the form of a servant was no accident. It wasn't some kind of nice touch, just a cherry on top. No, Jesus' self-giving love was essential to his ministry. It was essential that he became broken and poured himself out on behalf of the world. We can't even understand any of the narratival arc of Jesus' life without seeing how essential this self-giving love was, not just on the cross, but on the way to the cross. Jesus is a fully human. He's truly human by way of participating in God's self-giving love all the way to death on the cross. Jesus did not submit to fear of death, but rather he was faithful and he trusted in God. He offered and gave his life for the sake of the world. So we see that Jesus' life and ministry demonstrates the way that God had always intended for us to participate in his ongoing creative activity. And specifically, this way, the way, is the way of self-giving love, or the way of the cross. It involves the giving of oneself for the sake of another. It involves valuing the interests and well-being of the other above our own. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. He led a life of giving, not one of taking. He led a life that was compelling. He did not coerce others into following him. So too, we, the church, are called to be a giving people who invite others to participate in our joint mission, the story of Jesus, by way of example and by way of living a compelling life together. And our life together might not, in fact, have any kind of conventional beauty, whether fame or popularity or success, but our life together just might be compelling nonetheless, in that it has what Stephen and Eric have described as an aesthetic unity. It might have an integrity or some kind of moral coherence which makes it compelling. And I think that in order to live lives that are consonant with the biblical story that flows from Genesis through Jesus, 
it just might be a good idea to get to know our neighbors and to get to know the land. So we return to the good news of the gospel, which is this. In Christ, God has saved us from sin, death, and decay, so that we, in fact, might become God's image bearers on earth through Christ. By bearing God's image through self-giving love, we anticipate the new creation and the future resurrection of the dead.